Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's my good friend, Dr. Matt Woolley. We've got another wonderful guest, and we're going to get to him in just a second. But this is where we either catch up with Dr. Matt or find out what I've been doing in the last week. And it sounds like we got both. I think we should do both. What do you have for us today? You said, now, you quote said, this should be fun and quick. (laughs) I think it will be. I just want to know, make sure you're going to check both those boxes. So, so you know, I like to bring in the science. This is sort of science light because it's pre-science. When I tell people. We're talking about something that's coming up. When I tell people about our podcast that don't know about it, I go, I can tell you why an addict's thinking what they are and what's going through their head. And Dr. Matt can tell you the more important why, you know what I mean? Because this is the science behind what's going on. Yeah, science legitimizes everything we do, right? So if you're doing recovery, if your science can match it, then you ought to keep doing it. I would like to say that this was my idea, but I remember when I first came to them with this idea of the podcast, they go, you need somebody that's going to give you validity. (laughs) You need a doctor. We're not going to just let you open up the mic and talk. We need somebody with a science background, a doctor preferred, that can validify what you're saying. And we hang around together anyway. So might as well, right? It worked. Yeah, definitely. Well, here, so here's a little thing. I wonder, have you heard of dopamine fasting or dopamine detoxes? Well, I know in the recovery world, everyone talks about dopamine and right. the body creates dopamine. Mm-hmm. And so I got to assume that dopamine fasting is just kind of not releasing dopamine in your body. Right. So first of all, what does dopamine do? Uh, it gives you a euphoric a sense of uh, a high feeling, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's deep in your limbic system of your brain, and what it does is it bridges that gap of neurons and brings about kind of that pleasure, reward, and motivation system. You know, like when you feel pleasure, mm-hmm. you you get that benefit of a reward. You feel motivated. That's dopamine at play. Okay, okay so it's really important, okay. actually. And does everybody have dopamine? Yeah, sure. Okay. Everybody has dopamine. Problem is, we engage in so many activities that are hitting our dopamine nowadays. Uh, it used to be that you'd work all day long and then you look forward to something at the end of the day. And maybe you'd get a little dopamine release if you were satisfied with your work. But, you know, going and doing things that create pleasure feel like a reward at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Now people are kind of doing things all the time. For example, social media, video games, gambling, Casey, porn, junk food, drugs, alcohol. All of these things are pushing dopamine out all the time. And so if you think about at least the first two, social media and video games, nobody's waiting until the end of the day to do that anymore. No, no. Right? They're playing games on their phone. They're scrolling on social media. Checking to see um, how many likes they have. How about like with gambling, like prize picks? Prize like picks. People are doing that all day long, you know. Scratchems. Scratchems, all that kind of stuff. Even things like junk food. Uh, but, of course, drugs and alcohol, looking at pornography, these kinds of things are dopamine hits. A dirty Diet Coke, if you will. Exactly. And uh, uh, <laughs> never mind. Anyway, but one of the things that the theory is, is that people are becoming increasingly dissatisfied because they are burning up, using up all their dopamine all the time. They're going from one thing to another. They're a little bit like... A rat in a cage that's keep pushing that button in order to get a pellet of food. And we we decrease our dopamine levels by using them up all the time. Now, does, does dopamine, is it like a reservoir in your brain? Or are well, you, there's a limited amount. Okay, that's that yeah. my point. There's a limited amount. Yeah. And how do you replenish that? Is it just time? Great segue question. So we could go to Ann Lemke. She's professor of psychiatry at Stanford University. She's a real deal. She's the chief of Stanford Addiction Medicine. Okay. Yeah. And she said, here's a quote from her. It's kind of interesting. What we have seen in those patients is that not only do, do cravings 
begin to subside when they engage in what we'll talk about in a second in about four weeks. But the mood and anxiety and sleep and all these other parameters and markers of good mental health also improve. So if you if, if somebody said, hey, what could I do to improve my mood, decrease my anxiety and improve my sleep mm-hmm. this month? Would you would you be interested? Yes. OK, that right now, the science is starting to come in on whether or not um, a dopamine fast works. And what that means is that you take a break from those kinds of things that we just mentioned. Uh, somebody would say, well, I'm going to get off social media for a week, mm-hmm. video games, all that stuff that gives me an instant hit. Mm-hmm. I'm going to stop with the junk food. I'm going to take a break from drinking. You know, I'm going to take a break from all these things. And I'm just going to maybe focus on more productive behaviors that need to be done. I mean, it doesn't sound super fun, but it is a fast. You're doing without something for a period of time in order to allow your brain to catch up. How long you should fast, all of that may, jury's still out a little bit. But I would say if you you were, all of us have this stuff. All of us do something on that list, right? 100%. And so you could do an experiment and I would love to get some Facebook feedback from listeners if they took one week and took a fast from probably their top two. If you just do one, that may not be enough. Television, soda pop, uh, yeah. gambling, whatever it may yeah. be. Yeah, uh, I think for most people, it would be somewhere in social media and games. Yeah. Because most people might, you know, a lot of moms don't think of themselves as gamers, but they, they're playing a lot of Candy Crush. Oh, yeah. And so if you took a week break from all of that and then start to, you know, evaluate at the end of the week, how am I feeling with my mood? Do I feel a little bit less anxious? Am I sleeping a little better? And generally, do I feel a little more satisfied in the things I do do? If you've if you've zapped all your dopamine all day and then you go hang out with friends at night, it might feel kind of lame. If you haven't had dopamine all day and you go hang out with friends, it might be a really good time. So anyway, I say, I, I, I'm excited about that. I would say give it a couple weeks because I think the first week, and I just know because I'm an addict, yeah. the first week's going to be awkward because you're going without something. So most studies are having people do it for a month. Yeah. I, I would but say, I say a week because if I say a month, nobody's going to do it. I've been doing this I gig for a while. I would say two weeks because the first week yeah. you're going to try to get back to that baseline of right. zero and not doing it. And then the second week is where you're going to start yeah. to see... You right. know, some results. And that makes me go back to, you know, if if we did all things in moderation, we wouldn't have a podcast. We wouldn't have the problems that we're having nowadays. And moderation and mod- is where it's at. Moderation is sure. the key. Yeah. So anyway, I think the the idea of a dopamine fast, at least for the, you know, if you're listening to this, maybe take a little personal inventory and be like, yeah, may, am I using up all my dopamine? Do, am I always looking for the next, you know, quick fix to feel good? Getting pleasure. Well, if you remember, rewarded. How many times you say to yourself, "I need a reward." Yeah. When I stopped drinking for the first three months, anytime I heard a a can opening, that oh yeah, I I mean, I got your brain going. I want some dopamine. I got to do. Yeah, I was like, I I would would go. Somebody's about to have a good time, or my mouth would salivate. I'd be like, oh Oh, okay, here we go. And that's the same with anybody's addiction. You you know, like you see somebody on their phone and you're trying not to play on your phone, that you might get the same feeling. Or you know, you see somebody going into the Maverick, getting a big gulp or whatever. Maybe that's Seven Eleven. You talk to people who do drugs and just as important as the drug itself is the ritual before the oh, drug. yeah, the association. You know it what I mean? It gets the dopamine flowing. And all the things yeah. going, you know what I mean? Getting their kid out or doing whatever they may be, that, that gets everybody's motors going. And, and that's when it really starts to take hold. Mm-hmm. 
Because you've started this, and now you got to see it to completion. So I, I have a person I used to work with a long time ago, and he stopped drinking mm-hmm. before he had a major rock bottom, but it caused a lot of problems in his life. But he would come home um, on Friday after work, and he'd go to a grocery store by his house, and he'd get the big case of, I don't remember if it was Coors or whatever, the one you have to, it has a handle. Yeah, it's either you know, a 24-pack like, or a 30-pack. Yeah, I think it was probably 30 for this guy. Yeah. It had a big handle, and he said to this day, so it had been like a decade since he stopped, to this day, if he sees somebody walking out of a store with one of those, he just he gets that feeling like, oh, good times. You know, when I was in rehab, uh, we would go to uh, the gas station uh, twice a week to get drinks and treats or whatever it is. Yeah. And for the first two times I'd walk in there, I'd walk straight to the beer cooler. And when you're in rehab and you walk straight <laughs> to the beer cooler, they're like, hey, what is that guy? What's the new guy doing? Yeah. Don't go over there. You know what I mean? But it was just, it was just, just muscle memory. It was a little just, eye candy. I would, no, but I would just, because that's where that's I was. That's where used, you always went. That's where I yeah. always went. And so yeah. I was like, hey, I'm, I no longer go in this way. Yeah. So anyway, I... I am going to be working on some dopamine fasting. I encourage everybody else to consider I'll give it a shot, too, and I'll okay. let you know. All right. So the two things you get to choose uh, from me are... All right. Door number one? Door number one, me and the lovely Leslie went and got uh, a couple massages. Oh, I thought you were going to say tattoos. No. Oh. I don't have any tattoos. <laughs> we went and got a couple massages. Yeah. We walk into the room... She's got this big Helga-looking lady who's ready to give her a good massage. Right. I got a blind dude. A blind guy? Wow, that's awesome, I yeah, guess. It, I don't it know. was an amazing, it was an amazing, amazing background. He probably would be better because he's less it know, was, it was like, compensating, you know, because you can't see. Yeah, same, but yeah. It, was, and it was wonderful. And, and it was like a very cool experience. Because, There's a Seinfeld episode about that. I oh, guess. was there? I, George gets the guy and Elaine gets the lady and... George is really uncomfortable. I wasn't uncomfortable because yeah. it was a guy. I wasn't even uncomfortable. And I was just like, I wonder how this is going to go. Yeah. And he did an amazing job. Cool. And, and, you know, and I was like, good for him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. So I guess we talked about that one. There we go. Yeah. Check uh, box. The second one is. Uh, I like to have door number one and door number two. There you go. Uh, so a lot of people know this, but my first job back, real job from uh, rehab, uh-huh. I worked for a title company and right. Minky Couture. Yes. Uh, the Minky Couture is owned by Sandy Hendry, and the title company was owned by Mike Hendry, and they're married. Huh. And so I kind of danced back and forth between the two companies. And they Were really- you pals with them before? Well, that? I just because you know uh, Sandy used to come on to my TV show when I worked for the other station, and mm. when Minky first started. Oh, this I remember that. This was the very yeah. beginning of Minky. Yeah. And they would come on, and, and, and now, I mean, this this brand and this blanket- so You made friends with her that way. The yeah, blankets are made. We have them in all uh, all the rooms of the They're house. awesome. Yeah. And a side note is when I got divorced, um, I went golfing that day because I didn't want to see half of the stuff leave my house. Sure. When I got back, the only thing I called my ex-wife on- was she took every minky blanket. Oh. I go, you took every minky blanket? That's rough. You couldn't, you know, you kept <laughs> living here 50 50. You know, you're yeah. not going to leave me half of them. Yeah. And so I said, you got to bring back half of them. And she did. She kept the stand up paddleboard they gave me for Father's Day. <laughs> But she brought back half the Minky board well, blanket. It's a trade-off, right? So, anyways, there's this thing with Minky, and it's called the Heart of Minky. And a lot of people don't know, but the Heart of Minky is their charitable organization of Minky. Right. And so they give, I think it's want to say, ninety thousand to one hundred fifty thousand blankets a year to NC NICUs. Do they really give that many to yeah. NICUs? To oh, NICUs. that's great. Uh, across the country. Wow. And so, and, and if you go to a golf tournament uh, for any charity, there's always a minky blanket there that mm-hmm. they have donated. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just wonderful people and very charitable. 
Well, so they, they, they do this thing and they wanted to hear my story. Yeah, yeah. And so they sent out a film crew uh, last week and or it was a couple of weeks ago and they put it out and they did an amazing job. Yeah, good. And so it's called uh, A Heart of Minky, A Second Chance. And it's kind of my story, but you get to see my kids, you get to see my girlfriend. And so we'll put a link uh, underneath the Facebook page here where you can go watch and that you've story. you've been kind of teasing it on your Facebook, right? Yeah. Because I've seen, I've seen clips. From it's it. out and they did a wonderful job. And, oh, that's uh, awesome. I'm very grateful for Sandy and Mike Hendry for giving me a second chance. And, and, and the story will kind of explain what it meant to me and what it actually did for my recovery and my yeah. sobriety. And I know without a fact, um, I would not be here today in the situation I am if it wasn't for Mike and Sandy. Oh, that's wonderful. Giving me Good. a second chance. They're charitable. And, you know, we've talked to so many people that that first job out of rehab mm-hmm. means everything. And you're doubtful. Is anybody going to take a chance on me? Is my reputation going to stop me from climbing back up the ladder and earning money and well i've told sandy i go you believed in me when i didn't even believe in myself yeah and you don't know how important that is to have somebody go no we believe in you and and i want to go but have you looked behind me yeah but that's that's somebody who has the vision of looking in front of you like seeing who you really are what your potential is and giving you a chance and I think um, companies and individuals out there that are doing that for people in recovery, they, they really can't comprehend the, the positive impact that has because now that you're where you're at, you're, you know, paying it forward. I'm trying. Yeah. Well, we are excited today because we've got Morgan here. Morgan, what's your last name? My last name's Dimmit. Dimmit. And uh, he's a beast of a man. He's got a wonderful beard. He looks Fantastic. like a Norwegian god. He really does. I, yeah. thought, I thought Thor was in the room. And I don't know if you've seen this yet, Dr. Matt, but I'm going to scoot back. I just want you to take a look at these boots. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> I'm from Morgan, and I'm still impressed with those boots. Right? Those are impressive. we got to get a shot of those for the Facebook. And I asked him when the elevator up, I said, where do you get boots like that? You know? And he goes, where? Alpha wear. Of course it is. <laughs> alpha wear. Because you're an alpha male. Yes, there he you is. <laughs> I guess we're two betas here, bro. No, no, no. I know my place. No. <laughs> so we're going to hear Morgan Dimmitt's story here in just a few seconds. You're listening to Project Recovery. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist, and our guest today is Morgan Dimmitt. And uh, roofer? Yep, roofer. <laughs> but uh, you weren't always a roofer. No. Uh, so I grew up here in Salt Lake City, mm-hmm. um, East Mill Creek area. You know, I grew up in a good home. I had uh, my parents divorced when I was a young child. And uh, people would like to credit my drug addiction to these different kind of circumstances. But as a kid, I always looked at it as it was a double win. I got two, two Christmases, two Christmases, two I had birthdays, two Christmases. Yep. you know, um, I come from a loving family, understanding family. Are you an only child? No. So I have an older sister, older brother, younger sister, younger brother. Okay. So the middle, right? The middle. Yep. I too am a middle child. <laughs> Do you think you fit that middle child mold? Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, like for me, I was always the peacemaker. You know what I mean? I, I you know, I always wanted to give people what they wanted. Uh, my older brother kind of set the rules. I tried to obey the rules as best as possible. My little brother's like, somebody said something about rules, but I don't really understand. Yeah. 
Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, sometimes middle children, like the negative would be they sometimes feel invisible, like skipped over, like nobody's paying attention to them as much because you got older, they, they get that kind of attention. Then you got the baby. And so you're kind of in the middle with like, hey, look at me kind of stuff. And so, but sometimes you get away with more if you're in the middle because. Fly under the radar. Yeah. Oh, I flew under the radar for sure. <laughs> so, uh, middle child, uh, parents got divorced, um, and you, and and you, it wasn't a bad upbringing. No, not bad at all. Um, you know, I was into wrestling and football from a very young age. Um, grew up wrestling, loved it. Grew up playing football since I was eight years old. Um, really, a really good upbringing. When I got into junior high, um, that's kind of when. Uh, trouble started for me. Do you, do you feel like it was a rebellious nature, uh, circumstances? Were you looking for something different, or how do you think you fell into that? Well, what happened was when I was growing up, my older brother he used to put his hands on me, and um, like fighting wise, fighting wise, and I always had a complex that you know that's why I joined wrestling because I was like you know I need to stay after wrestling practice to defend myself. Uh huh. And um. You know, that's that was my outlet was aggression, mm-hmm. and I didn't know any different. I just thought that that was how, you know, boys acted. Well, we talked about earlier your boots being alpha boots, <laughs> but I mean back then that was what you always strived to be was the alpha male. Well, or, be I mean, tough, right? For, for most yeah. people, I mean, yeah. anyways, in my house was it was like you know, boys don't cry, yeah. rub some dirt on it, walk it off, and get up and just keep moving forward. Well, yep. I think that was the prevalent culture you know growing up 80s 90s -hmm. whatever and uh early 2000s even and uh especially if you grew up with brothers i I think there's a lot the closer you are in age and all of that the more the more likely you are i mean i think to some degree it is typical and normal to have you know that kind of uh you know rough housing that goes a little too far so in junior high uh, you like to fight yeah i kept it kind of started too a little bit in elementary school um, they kept kicking me out of schools and at that age, you know, I was getting kicked out of schools because of my behavior. And, um, I thought that, you know, maybe there's something wrong with me. I don't know why all these other kids get to stay here, but I keep getting moved around mm-hmm. <laughs> and I didn't want to take a look at that. It was me being aggressive towards other people that it was, I was being the problem, you mm-hmm. know, um, got into junior high. First time I smoked weed. Seventh grade, uh, I thought I arrived. First time I drank, seventh grade, I thought I arrived. So you felt like that was what you've been missing, or you just felt so much better on it? Yeah, I just felt better on it. I thought that when I smoked weed, I was calm. I didn't think I was aggressive anymore. So then I could fit in with crowds because I wasn't trying to be hyper-aggressive towards other people. I was just chilling. Now, that's what's fun about having this guy here. What does that tell you? I mean, does that mean he was an anxious kid or anxiety? Well, I mean, a lot of times people don't recognize anxiety as anxiety, but whether you were naturally anxious or not, it sounds like you were afraid enough of your older brother and what was going to happen that you're always on guard. So another word for anxiety would be vigilance, like always vigilant, always looking around, you know, always on guard. And that creates a, a type of tension that you probably were carrying with you all the time, feeling sort of defensive. So you're in a crowd, you're feeling that way, somebody else kind of like postures and then boom, it's on and there's a fight and then you're the one getting kicked out. So I bet you that whether it it was a biological, natural thing or just kind of a learned thing, eventually learned behavior becomes biology actually because of wiring. 
But yeah, I'm sure that you you probably didn't feel very relaxed most of the time, no. and then you had that first smoke or that first drink, like so many people mm-hmm. who've told their stories on our show. That it's just you're like, oh, this is how yeah. other people feel. And I think the biggest benefit, seventh grade. What's the most important thing in seventh grade? Social, right? Like yeah. you want to fit in, you want to be cool. You also want to be different, but you you don't want to be too different. You want to be cool, mm-hmm. and. If what he just said was, it made me feel like I could get along with the crowd. And it's like, oh, so you got the biological benefit of like, ooh, I'm relaxed. Yeah. And then you have the social benefit, which is huge in seventh grade. I fit in. People can like me. I can hang out. Yeah. Uh, man, that's like a magic combination. Yeah. And uh, so uh, wrestling, that was fun because it was just me and one other person. There's rules. And then I... I could go and practice, and however I practice is how I could dominate on the mat. And then I play football as well, so I'd play linebacker. And I was gonna, that was gonna <laughs> be my guess. I played linebacker, and I was always middle linebacker. So that that position, you're always looking for the most amount of violence. You know, you're trying to get to that running back, the quarterback. Most and, coaches just let the middle linebackers go, yeah. just like you do your thing, right? <laughs> and back then, it, you, the, violence was what you wanted. Yeah. Chaos and destruction. Yep. And um, so when I wasn't playing football, that I didn't understand how to have controlled aggression or things like that. And I, when football season wasn't going on, and I wasn't at wrestling practice or in a wrestling match. That's where it was causing problems in my in my life because I didn't have any other outlet. I was just like, I need football season again. I got to hurt somebody. <laughs> and I, I didn't see a problem with it because every time I went and laid out a quarterback or sat or ran over a running back or laid out a lineman, the coaches, that's where you get your most praise. They're well, like, yeah. The crowd too, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah. The crowd, my family. They're like, wow, you really got that Being guy. Being a beast on the field is praised and valued, right? Yes. Being a beast off the field, eh, yeah, not so you much. Running some legal troubles. So, do you remember when you uh, seventh grade you tried weed and alcohol for the first time, and you said, "Yeah, that was it. That was the good stuff." Yeah. Did you carry that along through high school, or did you kind of just leave that be for a while? So, when it wasn't like football season and in between wrestling season and stuff like that. Um, I would smoke weed when it wasn't like during a sports season or and I would drink occasionally, you know, sometimes there'd be a party at somebody's house, someone's parents went out of town, we'd go over and drink and carry on. But it wasn't like an everyday deal. I didn't I didn't drink every day, I didn't smoke every day. I didn't understand what addiction was, right? And when I was growing up around high school, my dad had his own addiction problem to cocaine. And um, I would see his addiction, and I was like, man, what is wrong with this guy? Like, why can't he just not do cocaine? Like, it's not that simple. It's not that hard to understand. Mm-hmm. It's messing your life up. Just don't do it. And um, so you kids knew that that was his DOC. Yeah. Okay. And um, it just, from the outside looking in, it's just like a lot of parents, like my parents did with me. You know, they're like, why can't this guy understand that it's messing his life up? Oh, well, you know how many times my ex-wife said, just quit. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, Simple yeah, as that, right? Yeah. And I was like, trust me, I've tried. Yeah. And, and, and if you can give me a different way to do it, I'm in. But uh, I've tried. <laughs> I know how. Yeah. And um, the crazy thing was, so going through um, high school, I played at Skyline High School. Um, man, I, I tamed my temper at Skyline High School. And a lot of the guys on my team, they didn't 
mess with me like that because we were a team, we loved each other, and we built each other up. But we were more looking for the other teams to have problems with. Mm-hmm. And um, I went through, we played we uh, played high school football, everything was good. We all drank, smoked weed, and that was it. Well, when I got out of high school, I wanted to go play college football. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go up to University of Utah and play. And uh, I got in a fight. <laughs> and when I got in this fight, um, this this kid, he almost died. And he had like a 20% chance to live. And um, they were trying to send me to the Utah State Prison for a very long time for attempted murder. And um, Sounds like a pretty bad fight. Yeah, it, w- it was bad. Um, you were just 18 at the time? I was just 18. I had yeah. that high school mentality. You know, I didn't. I just thought that invincible. I just thought that's how you handled your problem was just apply more pressure. And, um, they obviously didn't work. (laughs) Um, so what happened was, is, uh, I got put on APMP, you know, I, I did a thousand hours, uh, community service through the boys and girls club. What's APMP probation, adult probation and parole. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. And that was in lieu of going to prison. So the kid ended up living, thank God. And, um, I got put on APMP for three years and got a thousand hours community service. Well, the first thing I did on my community service was I had this guy over at the boys and girls club that I used to have to do a lot of community service for because as a juvenile, I'd get assault charges and this guy, I'd go to him and I'd work off 40, 50 hours multiple times. And so I went to him this time and I said, listen, his name was Kevin. I said, Kevin, I need to do some community service. And he goes, well, how much hours do you got? I said, a thousand hours. And he goes, are you kidding me? What'd you do? Almost kill somebody? And I said, yeah, (laughs) it ended up almost being that bad. And he says, well, you know, I got a thing for you. Um, You're going to have to do some refereeing and coaching junior jazz basketball. And man, that was one of the most beneficial things I, I did for that aggressive part of me because um, I don't know if you've been to a junior jazz or a little league. I've been thrown out of a junior jazz game. <laughs> yeah. You have? I have. Can you believe that? Wow. Yeah. I, all I said was, you got to be kidding me. And I got thrown out. Yeah. yeah. So I, I refereed and coached, right? And when I would be refereeing a team um, that I coached against, sometimes the parents would be thinking that I'm trying to like – uh, throw a game or something but these kids are in like sixth grade fifth grade someone's gonna double dribble I just try to be fair and call it both ways mm-hmm. but more or less just try to keep the flow of the game going sure <laughs> first of all he told me you can't tell anybody <laughs> that you're here doing this as community service or else I'm gonna get in trouble yeah and I was like and you are on probation so punching people is probably not a good idea exactly that too well what happened was is I, I smoked weed when I got out of high school and I got put on that APMP and I was like, you know what, I need uh I still need an outlet to calm me down. So I got involved in uh pain pills mm. and um oxycontin to be exact. So you didn't get into pain pills because of a doctor prescription. You got into it because you could no longer smoke weed. Yes, a hundred percent. And I didn't understand what addiction was, right? I didn't know that you could withdraw from pain pills. So still at this point, the living with your father and, and realizing that you're going to have to switch from marijuana to pain pills, addiction wasn't even in your mind. You didn't think it was anything you had. No, not at all. And uh, I had a cousin that was uh, getting prescribed pain pills from a local doctor here. Mm-hmm. 
and a lot of people in this opiate epidemic, um, Dr. Stack, you know, he, he prescribed a lot of pain pills out to a lot of people. Well, my cousin was one of the beneficiaries of it. And um, he told me, he said, hey, you can take this pain pill and then in three, four days, you're going to be clean. So when you go into APMP, you can pass your piss test and you're good to go. Mm-hmm. And But he didn't let me know that this is that you withdraw from it as well. So I, I started taking these pain pills and, um, man, I'd go into APMP and I'd stop taking it like four days before I'd go in there for the first three months. And I kept thinking that my immune system had been compromised because I would get the flu. I was like, man, I got the flu really bad. Let me ask you this before we get into that a little further. You said when you took marijuana and alcohol for the first time in seventh grade, you felt wonderful. Did you have that same feeling when you took a pain pill? Yeah, it was like reset all over again. Like uh, when I first started taking alcohol and weed, it was like that, but even better. And I was like, I've arrived again. Mm. This is what I've been missing is this pill right here. So you thinking you're you're getting the flu every time you're stopping to go in and take a pee test, but you're really withdrawing. Yes, 100%. And then uh, what happened was, is after the third month of doing this, um, my cousin calls me up and he's like, hey, you haven't came over to my house. What's going on? Because he knew when I'd check in and everything. And I was like, bro, I'm like so sick. Like, I I can't even get up. And he's like, I'm like, I just went to my uh, uh, probation. I actually had to sit down on the toilet to take the pee test. And my probation officer didn't think that was too cool. And... uh, what happened was, is um, he's like, just come over to my house. Everything's cool. You know, I'm just going to give you some and you're going to be just fine. And I was like, I, I don't think I can even get in my car to drive over there. So I went over there and I did it. And immediately I was 100% better. Yeah. And I was like, oh, no, what is this? He goes, you've been withdrawing the last three months every time you stop. And I was like, what? What is that? And he says, yeah, when you take a prescription opiates um, for, you know, a week, you can withdraw from it. And I was like, what the hell? Well, at this time, I'm already addicted, right? And my dad tells me, he says, listen, son, because I was honest with him. I said, yeah, I take pain pills. It's not a big deal. And he says, listen, if you can stop doing those pain pills for one month, I'll give you $1,000. And I was like, sweet. Like I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm going to get a thousand bucks right now. (laughs) Yeah. And I couldn't, I couldn't. And at that point I knew I was hooked. Right. Even with that big carrot out there, you couldn't do it. No, no, it didn't matter. How long did you last? Uh, I think I lasted about a week and he would take me to these 12 step meetings. And the thing about it was, is I'd go to these 12 step meetings and, um, he was big in the recovery scene doing that. And I'd go in there and I'd hear all these people's stories and it sounded like Charlie Brown to me because yeah, when I went in there, I was looking for the differences rather than the similarities. And all I could hear was this, this bad stuff happening in all these people's life. And I was like looking at him like, can't you pick better friends to hang out with for an hour? <laughs> like this, this is not you wanted good. the stories where addiction led to good stuff. Yeah. I was like, what's going on here? And, um, so but the cool part about it was is he planted the seed by taking me around these rooms mm-hmm. and letting me hear these stories from these people. A seed got planted, but I didn't know it was being planted. 
And so your your dad was in recovery at this time. At now. this time, yeah. So he'd found recovery yeah. at some point. Okay. Right after I got out of high school, um, I, I was just, yeah, about senior year, he, st- he started finding recovery and got heavily involved in a 12-step base program. And um, what, just out of curiosity, what sort of decade is this we're talking about? When, like what year? So I graduated 2005. 2005. Okay. Yeah. And so we're, you know, one of the problems with, I mean, you're, you're saying I didn't know that they, those could lead to addiction, but you know what? Most people didn't know. In fact, the opposite was being told. The the, yeah. the companies were the drug companies were saying these won't lead to addiction, 100%. and doctors were believing them and saying that this won't lead to addiction. So you shouldn't feel embarrassed at all for not knowing that. Yeah. Um. Because the world didn't know it. We know it now. Yeah. But that was one of the biggest lies that was propagated on on the public was that these are safe, and and most people then didn't even realize. What's in Oxycontin is the same thing that that's in heroin. Yep. Like people didn't know that. And, and you know, it, so a lot of people got using these pills because they are so powerful uh, with sort of a naive perspective like, oh, this is fine to use. Yeah. So you're doing uh, pain pills. Is that all you're doing at this time? Yeah, pain pills. That's it. And at this time, I, I started playing in a semi-pro football league because I couldn't go up to Utah to play because of all my charges that I had going on. And I, I joined the semi-pro league here, Rocky Mountain Football League. Mm-hmm. And, man, I thought that was the best thing ever. Taking a couple Oxycontins and going out and playing football, I was like, this is – man, I wish I would have known this in high school. I could have played even better. And little <laughs> did I know that it was killing me, right? By the time the football season would end, I'd be down like 20 pounds. But I thought I was still 20 pounds heavier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so your body's taking a real beating. Oh, yeah. The inside bo- and out. Yes, 100%. It, uh, is anybody on the team, anybody in your inner circle going, hey, what's going on? Oh, yeah. So what happened was is uh, we were playing a game up in Idaho. And I thought I brought enough pain pills for me to go up there and play against this team. And... You know, as addicts, uh, we like to justify anything like, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to do a little extra today and, you know, by tomorrow I'll just do a little less and I'm going to be okay. Well, I went up there to go play a game and I ended up doing all my pain pills before the game day even started. And uh, my family came, they lived in Idaho too. I had family in Idaho. They came to the game and man, that was the worst game in the world, but I... I'm a football player, so you, I was like, you know what? I'm going to push through this, and I'm going to play regardless. And we ended up barely winning the game, but, man, it was hell playing through that game. <laughs> I bet. So when does it go from pills to heroin? So what happened was is Dr. Stack eventually got busted, and the price of uh, Oxycontin 80s went from $40 to $80, right? Because it was no longer flooded the market. And then they switched. Supply and demand. Yeah. And then they switched over to, instead of OC, OP. And OCs, they people could uh, crush it up, snort it, inject it, however, smoke it, however you wanted to do it. But the OPs was made to just swallow. Well, just like you guys were talking about, the ritual of doing something like that, you get those dopamine rushes. I didn't want to swallow a pain pill. No, I had a specific way I wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. 
And um, so once they switched it over and then the price got up to $100 for a pill, I somebody introduced me to heroin. So w- when it was pills, how many pills would you take a day? Would one do it or? No, it was like three to four. So you're three to four. Yeah. Three to $400 a day. Yeah. Have have you, uh, Morgan, or you, Casey, have you watched Dope Sick? The, uh, I've watched the, the first couple episodes. Yeah, so, the, so you're living through exactly what they were portraying happened you know, around the country where people, for various reasons, you know, get on the pills, then the companies start changing them, and then they get more expensive. People start getting busted. The, you know, they, they, and now they price everyone out of the market. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we, you know, the opioid crisis you know went from pills into now heroin heroin. crisis yeah so walk me through the decision you made in your head to go i'm going to heroin so was it an easy jump or was it one of those things you were like well here's here's the thing is so when you're doing pain pills and you see a heroin addict right you're thinking of like downtown here by the homeless shelter you're thinking of a heroin addict like that and you're like i do pain pills these you know, I'm higher class. Yeah. Yep. And, you know. I'm, I would never do that. I right? would never do that. I'm, That's dirty. I'm managing just fine, you know. Look, I'm a football player. Yeah, right? I play football. Like, I, I'm, I'm above that. Well, what happened was is uh, I called my friend to get some uh, pain pills. And he's like, yeah, we'll go pick some up. And when we went to go pick it up, it wasn't pain pills. We are meeting like Hector for balloons. And I was like, he comes and gets back in my car, and he has balloons in his hand. And I said, that's not a pain pill, bro. But at the time, I was sick. And he goes, I promise you, this is way better. And just one of these things right here is going to be like doing three or four of those that, that you were doing. And I was like, really? He goes, yeah. Just smoke some and, and see what happens. Oh, my gosh, I was blown away. I smoked some. Next thing I know, I was puking. I was so high that I started puking, and I was like, that was how much, $10? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, this is a much better route right here. And then it's that dirty little secret. Now you don't want people to know. You know, at the time I had a girlfriend, and she used Oxycontins with me, and uh, I, I had to do the heroin on the side, but I still would buy Oxycontins to do some with her. And then eventually I was just like, screw the girlfriend. I'm just buying heroin. If she's not on board with that, then she can go away too. I think that's common, (laughs) right? Like a lot of people, they start giving up everything for the heroin. Yep. Girlfriends, jobs. Anything. And friendships, family. Yeah. And the crazy part about it is, is you don't understand that that's what you're doing. Like you're not like, oh, here, let me just push everything in my life across the table because none of that matters to me. But eventually, one thing after another after another, you're slowly starting to push these things back across the table. And, you know, people in uh, recovery, they're like, I lost everything. Well, I didn't lose everything. I gave everything away, not knowing that I was giving it away because I was picking a substance over all this other stuff. I like that. And I've never heard that. In it's the, a good perspective. The years that we've done this podcast. Yeah. Because I, I've often said that I lost everything. And right. the truth is, you're right. I gave it away. Yeah. yeah, and I like how you you threw in there. You don't realize you're doing it, but that is what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, you're giving everything away in exchange for for your drugs. So did the girlfriend stay on board with heroin, or did she leave too? She left too. 
Well, she ended up started dating the guy that I was buying the Oxycontins from because, <laughs> you know, naturally. Wow, got to go to the source. <laughs> yeah. yeah, naturally, you know, I couldn't fault her for it. <laughs> I said, you know, I said, you know, I'm going to go this route. This is way, this is way uh, financially better for me. And, you know, if that's what you're going to do is you that. You the road less traveled. Yeah. And um, the crazy thing was is uh, I, I was doing that and playing football. And so then I started doing heroin and playing in that league. And I went from, like, 250 down to, like, 220 at linebacker. And I'm like, maybe I need to be an outside linebacker because I'm starting to get a little light to be playing in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> but I still just played middle linebacker. Um Eventually, what happened was is uh, that that fight I got in, I got sued for two point two million dollars. Mm-hmm. And um, by the time I was twenty five, I was like, you know what? Utah's my problem. Heroin's my problem. Everybody I know here in Utah's my problem. I'm I'm out of here. I'm going to uh, California. Okay. You know, I I just need to get away from this place. Luckily, they don't have heroin there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> So what I told myself was is that under no circumstance am I going to do heroin or cocaine or any hard drugs like that. And um, I moved out to San Diego. And when I moved out there, uh, I started doing boat and jet ski rental. And, man, it just took off from there. When I got out there, I just started smoking weed again. And I was like, man, I have arrived. This is California. This is San Diego. It's a totally different culture. People don't even care if you're walking around smoking weed. So you didn't pick up heroin or cocaine? No. no. So at that point, you've never picked it up again? At that point, I didn't pick it up again. And when I was out there, I I thought that, you know, this was a beautiful life. Everything's good. Well, I started meeting connections, right? And... You know, Biggie Small says, you know, don't don't uh, do your supply or whatever. <laughs> you know, don't get high on your own supply. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, uh, what you happened? Got high on your own supply. Yeah. What happened was is I uh, I met some guy out there, and um, man, it just took off. I started becoming a drug dealer, and I was like, you know, growing up watching Scarface and Goodfellas and all these things. I was like, this is this is the ideal life right here. This is what Did I you need. ever see the end of Scarface, the end of the movie? <laughs> right? It doesn't turn out too great. <laughs> I know. And th- that, that's the thing is, as an addict, you always think that anything You're different. Good, anything, it's just the middle of the movie you pay attention yeah, to, Yeah, right? anything yeah. bad that happened, maybe that was just because that guy tried to do it that way. I'm smarter yeah. than I'm that. smarter. <laughs> I'm going to do it this way. And um, what happened was is I, I was out there like 18 months, and I got federally indicted. Oh. Um, and the feds- they were trying to hit me for money laundering, tax evasion, and conspiracy to possess uh, uh, cocaine. And they were oh, tra- so you did go back to cocaine? No, but I was selling it. Oh, selling it. In, uh, he listened to Biggie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In big quantities. Yeah. And what happened was, is um, I when I moved out there and I got federally indicted, they were trying to give me thirty years. Wow, thirty thirty years minimum mandatory. And uh, I had this attorney and uh, this guy, super cool guy. He's from back east. Um, this guy, he helped save my life. Um, so what happened was is he came in and visited me. And he's like the attorney off Breaking Bad. This guy freaking <laughs> shot me straight. He goes, listen, 
Uh, you have a 30-year mandatory minimum sentence, and um, even if you're sleeping with the judge's daughter and he wants you to become his son-in-law and live happily ever after, we either have to beat this case or you're going to do 30 years or more. No way to get out of it. No way to get out of this. He goes, the only way to get out of it is you're going to have to tell on these people. Well, the people that we're involved with is the cartel, and you tell on these people, your family gets whacked first, and then you're last. Yeah. <laughs> so you're running around with big boys. So what, what did you? How did you feel? Like you're, you, those are both terrible choices. Like how did that make you feel? Well, the thing was, is I I was totally isolated and alone, right? And they kept sending me to like the worst of the worst lockup facilities they had because they were trying to break me and get me to turn. And um, I love my family, and under no circumstance could I jeopardize them for what I was doing. So I just said, you know what? I guess I'm going to have to do 30 years in prison. You know, I accepted this. I was 25 years old. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'll be out when I'm 55. Yeah. I mean, it is what it is at this point. I made a deal with God and, and at this point I didn't really believe in God, but I made a deal with him. And I, I said a prayer and I said, you know, if somehow, some way you can show me some mercy you know, I'm going to change my life and I'm going to do things that you'd want me to do, help people and do things like that. And the craziest thing happened. The craziest thing happened. Um, he came through on his end, right? I was the very first case in San Diego. Uh, so back in 2012, we had an attorney general named Eric Holder. And Eric Holder came out with a policy saying that if it's a drug crime, and there's no violence in the commission of the crime, they can pick and choose which case uh, to enforce a mandatory minimum or not. Mm-hmm. And what happened was is my attorney, I told my attorney about this, and he goes, that, that sounds fine and dandy. He goes, but um, we have the number one worst prosecutor. And the prosecutor has to be the... So a policy is just a suggestion. It's not a law. Right. And... I was like, well, what's the difference? He goes, the prosecutor has to bring it to the judge. The judge can't bring it to the prosecutor. That's how it works in federal court. And I was like, so this prosecutor, how are we going to get him on board to say this is something? He goes, well, it's never happened. You know, you'd be the very first case for this to (laughs) happen. And I don't see it happening. And I was like, oh, no, this is not good. And he goes, only one thing interaction I've had with this, uh, this prosecutor, he had a heart attack, and this prosecutor is the type of guy that doesn't is not in anyone's social network or anything like that. He told me he drives a two thousand dollar car to work every day. The guy's a millionaire, but just he hates people like you. And I was like, wow, <laughs> that, that's pretty. <laughs> I'm feeling discouraged over here just by yeah. the state of the story. And he's just shooting me straight, and he goes, "This guy hates people like you, and he won't talk to any other attorneys." Outside the courtroom, only in the courtroom, not in the elevator, not at lunch, only in the courtroom. And I was like, damn, we're screwed. I was like, is there any way we can get a new prosecutor? (laughs) And he's like, no. He goes, but the interaction I had with him, he had a heart attack like two years ago. And I went and I heard that he was at the hospital. And I went into his hospital room and uh, I told him, I said, if your heart's anything as tough as you are as an attorney, you're going to be all right. And he said the guy was awake, he was coherent, 
didn't say nothing, didn't smile, didn't wave at me. He's like, it got really awkward, and I walked out of the room. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shoot. So <laughs> is that a good thing or a bad thing? He goes, that's the only interaction I've had with him outside. And then uh, I sat there for over a year fighting this charge. And, man, they had me in some crazy conditions. I kept getting in fights and things like that. Um, in that prayer I said with God, I said, you know, if you don't show me that you're real and you don't have uh, care for me, you're going to create something you didn't want to create the other way. <laughs> because at 30 years... So you're giving God an ultimatum. Well, I mean, I just said, you know, I'm going to go either one way <laughs> or all the other way. Well, there's truth to that. I mean, we know that young people that go to prison for long periods of time become more hardened criminals when yeah. they get out. And and there's a lot of there's a lot of evidence and a lot of truth to that. And so I mean, that is probably what would have happened. Yeah. And that that was what I was thinking in my head and my prayer and everything and I what happened was is this prosecutor came back and he said uh, that he'd be willing to go for this policy. And I was like where do I sign? Where do I sign? He gives me the paper. I signed. Um, <clears throat> as soon as I signed, the prosecutor wouldn't let me bail out because I was from Utah originally. And when I signed, he let me bail out to come back to Utah for the holidays. And then I had to fly back out to uh, San Diego for sentencing. And um I was the very first case, it's called case law in San Diego, for that policy to go into play. Now, you would think that that would be enough of a wake-up call to be like, now I need to carry out my end of the bargain. Well, what happened is I go to prison. So while I'm in prison, now I'm around other people with criminal mentality, prisoner, uh, prison code. So as you're dealing, so you got sentenced, how much prison time did they sentence you to? So I ended up doing over like three and a half years on it. Yeah. So that was the that was the compromise. They didn't have to do the minimum mac maximum, which was thirty. Which was thirty. Which just for the listeners, what that means is that there's no negotiating. The judge can't even, you know, if that's the law, the judge can't even change it. Yeah. And so you were locked into thirty, but because of this new suggestion, yep. you know, this policy, then they allowed you to negotiate and you got it down to three and a half years. Yes. Okay. But it's in prison now, but not now, jail, yeah. prison. Okay. Now, now I'm in prison. But you, the craziest part about it was is the the jail environment that I was in out there was way worse than the prison environment I was in. Hmm. But I already was being groomed in this really uh, – so – out there in California, I'm I'm not like a hatred person. I'm not a racist. I'm not any of that stuff. But out there in California prison system, that's where uh, you got to pick a side. Well, that's where Utah models its prison uh, codes and things is after California, right? Mm -hmm. And I kept getting in fights because I'm not that way. They're like, you can't share with this person because they're this. Well, I don't care. My my stepdad's Tongan. I grew up with <laughs> all different kinds of cultures, and I'm not that way. And I wasn't going to just be like, okay, I'll, I'll go with you guys. Mm -hmm. I stood up for myself, and they didn't like that. But once I got to the uh, federal prison in Arizona, man, it was like, it was cush. It was like I showed up on a college campus. Everything was way more relaxed. It was way more chill. 
And um, they had Suboxone that was coming in there. And so I'm an opiate user, and I was like, Suboxone? Why Why would I do Suboxone? Because <laughs> at this point, you're clean. You've been, yeah. You've been there for what? And I didn't know that you could get high off Suboxone, right? So, I mean, because I've, I've taken it as a maintenance out in society before, but I never caught a buzz off of it taking it like that because I didn't know that if you just lower your dose and then take a lot, that that's what's going to happen. And um, I was out there, and they would sell those strips of Suboxone 8 milligrams for $300 a strip, and I was like, perfect, I'm going to get into drug dealing out here in prison. So now you're drug dealing in Arizona prison. <laughs> yeah, now I'm going to drug deal in prison because, you know, I've, I'm an addict. I've, I've already forgot about... What God, deal with God? Yeah, I've already forgot what God already did for me. I'm I'm the victim. The feds took my cars, my money, all these things. You know, I I walked around in society with victim mentality, and I didn't even know it. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, what happened was they let me out, and they wanted to put me on five years probation. Well, I couldn't do the probation because I wanted to continue to get high. So what ended up happening is. I went and tried like two treatment centers. I couldn't do their treatment centers. And I went back to court and I just said, listen, just put me in prison for the rest of my probation. So then I, I don't have to deal with you guys. They said, perfect, we'll do it. <laughs> they, they're agreeable to that. <laughs> so where most people in the recovery world would choose a recovery center over prison yeah. because they thought it would be easier or better or more beneficial. You said, nah, give me the prison time and I just want to be done with it. Yeah. Because I thought that if I could just get them off my back, that I would be free again. But little did I know that having an addiction, you're never free. I'm actually more locked up if I'm out here on the streets using drugs than I ever was in prison. Mm, that's mm. a good way to think of it. <laughs> yeah. And and it's, it's crazy to say that, but that's the truth. That's the honest to God truth for me because um, when I went back there, and I got out of prison. I went back for another year, and they just terminated my paper. And I got out, and I was like, "Woo, I'm free." <laughs> well, I wasn't free because when I got out, I still had a habit, and I started using drugs again. And I just didn't have a probation officer to you, <laughs> you know have a safety net or anybody checking in on you. Yeah, I didn't have anyone keep me in line. I didn't have no p tests. I didn't have any of that going on. And I was like, "This, I'm good now." And um. So what happened is I was back here in Utah, and I kept um, kept using. And then what happens is, as an addict, you do criminal things to pay for your drug habit, right? And I kept getting all these charges, and I would just go to rehab. You know, I see that a lot here in uh, Utah's uh, community. You know, nobody knows when somebody's going to be done, Right when somebody's actually going to try to do something different. And I'd get these charges, and then I'd go to rehab, and then I'd do the rehab program. I've been to seven treatment centers. Oh. And my dad always kept, like, health insurance on me, you know. And this is the kind of selfish person I was, is I was like, man, if my dad would just send me to Passages Malibu, we get this <laughs> we get this over with, I, I would get 10 years of sobriety, and I, too, could be clean like him. Yeah. But little did I know that that's not yeah, – <laughs> the Passages Malibu isn't the end-all, be-all. Oh, Yeah, any treatment center can work for you. But if it, you let it. Yeah, but it's not just the treatment center that has worked for me. So what happened was is 
I ended up getting over 20 charges against me by going to treatment and getting out and then carrying on drug use and then going back to treatment, getting locked up. And eventually what happened was, is, um, man, my higher power came through for me. I was up in Davis County and I got arrested up there and I don't even go to Davis County, <laughs> but their police department must've knew that somebody wasn't good to have in their city. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And they, it sounds like Davis County. Yeah. 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 They're pretty on it. <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> so they, they got me. Right. And at the time I completely surrendered. Right. And this is where my recovery journey started for me. Right. I didn't, I didn't know I was going to, it was get, a heck of a road to get there. Yeah. I didn't know that I was going to, that was going to be it. Right. And when I got arrested, well, I always had a prescription of Suboxone because at ADC, you can get Suboxone in your in jail. Well, at Davis County, they don't care if you have a prescription of Suboxone. I didn't use my prescription of Suboxone on the street. I just had it as a safety net because I knew eventually I'm going to jail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, that was one of my requirements for treatment centers, too. If I'm coming to your treatment center, I need to have Suboxone maintenance because I thought that I was, like, terminally sick. So just like somebody that's a diabetic, they have to take insulin every day. I was convinced to myself that I had to have a synthetic opiate in my body or else I wasn't going to be able to live. (laughs) And that was the biggest lie that I ever told myself. And I got to find that through recovery. So when I went to Davis County, they said no Suboxone. I got sent to ADC and they're like, after like four days, I was withdrawing pretty good. uh, They're like, you have a prescription to Suboxone. And I was like, I was handcuffed to their bench and I was like, something inside me said, no, I told the lady, I told the nurse, no, I'm okay. And she was like, okay. And walked off. And immediately after the next thought in my brain was, you dummy, why'd you tell her? No, like you need that. You're sick. Like you need to have that. And that was the start of my recovery journey. That was the first time I was able to turn something down like that, that was keeping me sick. Right. Because if I can manage uh, taking Suboxone uh, as doctor prescribed, I would have managed taking heroin as Morgan prescribed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, no, makes sense because we have we have these uh, receptors in our brain. And what happens is as you use drugs or alcohol, you start getting more of them and you have to cover them. Right. So that's how your tolerance goes up. And um so my tolerance would always go up <laughs> and then it goes up, up, up. And then Suboxone is not enough, enough for me. And just for l- the listeners, like the original intention of Suboxone is to have a person step down, right? So yep. somebody who's an active user of heroin and they use Suboxone and then they are in a, hopefully in a program where they're able to step down. The problem is in most cases or many cases, it's not managed that well. Mm -hmm. And so you're right. People kind of step down and then they step back up and then they step down and they're never really giving their brain a chance to fully be off the opiates. And I think your, your dialogue, your internal dialogue of believing that you would always need that sort of like a diabetic. I think that's a great analogy. Um, I think a lot of people have that uh, internal dialogue because being dope sick feels like you're going to die. But yep. for the first time in your life, you turned it down. I turned it down, right? And in the past, I would, so Suboxone, if you take it for a month, you withdraw for a month. So in the past, I would take heroin to come off the Suboxone when I'd get out of treatment. I'd tell myself, I'm just going to do heroin for a month and I'm going to step down from that because that's, mm-hmm. that's going to be a less of a withdrawal. 
I never could do it. Yeah. When I got to this, uh, when I was in jail, um, I got introduced to a treatment center called Reflections. And um, now this was my seventh treatment center going to. And I was in my head. I didn't believe in myself. You know, that's where this beard comes from. (laughs) I never grew a beard. And where this beard comes from is that when I was um, sitting in jail, I didn't want to shave my face. I didn't want to use their potato pillars (laughs) to cut (laughs) cut my face. And then by the time I hated myself, and by the time I got to rehab again the seventh time, um, man, I hated myself still. I I couldn't stand myself. I couldn't believe what I become. I would brush my teeth in the shower. And um, so I didn't shave my face when I was in rehab. Well, I get out of rehab. So I was locked up for like, I don't know, like 50 days and then a 45-day treatment. By then, I I start having a beard. (laughs) And um, I'm starting to have a little bit of compassion for myself. Now, I'm going to tell you this thing about the rehab. So when here's I'm just going to pause right here. So here's what happens with a lot of people in rehab. Um, 100% when I go into that rehab, I know that I'm an addict. I, I know it. My life's unmanageable. Uh, I'm there. <laughs> well, by the time I graduate their program, I'm, you know, I'm about 90% an addict at this point. You know, well, what happens is I get a girlfriend. Now I'm about like 70% because, you know, I'm starting to manage my life a little better. I get a job. Oh man, I'm like 60%. I get a car, now I'm down to 40%. <laughs> you know, and what happens is this percentage keeps dropping because I don't know that I can't just do just the rehab because the opposite of addiction is connection, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and the connection part was the part I was missing because the only connections I had were connections in the dope world, right? Mm-hmm. And enough time you get out of rehab and you don't build up a sober community around you what happens is those other connections of those people you're yearning for that kind of connection and even if it's a bad connection (laughs) that's what you want yeah you're like you know i'm going to show these guys how to be sober now i'm I'm just going to go hang out with the bros and we're gonna i'm gonna show them that sobriety rocks well the problem is is it never's worked for me because what happens is (laughs) maybe not that first day i go and hang out with them that I, I get high, but eventually what's going to happen is I would say within a week of it, I'm going to stub my toe and I'm going to be the victim to society and life again. And that's going to sound like a lot better. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to be laughing, joking around. And I'm going to be like, yeah, that's, that's where I want to be. And, um, the coolest part about it is when I get out of treatment, I'm not on Suboxone. I'm not on any medications at all. And this is the first time that I totally off of all that stuff. And um, what happens is, is I know that people in this 12-step program are staying sober, but always in the past, like I said before, you know, I took everyone's inventory <laughs> when my dad would take me there, and I couldn't hear any of the similarities, but I knew that these people were staying sober. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to give it a chance. I'm going to jump in with these guys, even if I don't like them. <laughs> I Oh, I get put on drug court. So let me reverse back. While I'm in treatment... Um, I get put on drug court. Now I have to go plead guilty to 20 plus charges. This judge, his name's Judge Hogan. He was out of West Jordan. Now he's in Tooele. This guy helped save my life, helped change my life. 
nothing but uh, mad respect and love for this guy. He believed in me before I believed in myself. There it is. He believed in me way before I believed in myself. And um, the crazy thing about it was is in that drug court, they have to vote you in. The staff has to vote you in. And um, when I was in phase four, <laughs> he put the rest of the drug court staff on blast. And he said, everyone in drug court, you know, the staff, raise your hand. And I'm standing there at the podium. And he's like, take a look around. I look around. I don't know what's going on. He's like, sorry, I got to tell Mr. Dimmitt. He would call me Zeus. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> he was cool. <laughs> this guy was funny. He's like, I, I got to tell you, everybody that has their hand raised said no. But all it took was one person to say yes, and look at you, you're changing your life. He's like, not only you proved me right, you proved yourself right, and you're proving society right and your family. He's like, and that's why I do this job, is to see people like you that nobody thinks they can do it change their life. Uh, good man. And I was like just blown away by it, you know? And what happened was when I got out of treatment – um, I go to these 12 step programs and I started liking the people there. Mm -hmm. You found a better connection. <laughs> I started liking these people there and I stopped looking for the differences because I got a sponsor that told me, he said, you know, stop looking at the differences and look for the similarities and you'll get brought into this group. And then what happened is we went through these steps and these steps changed my life. Absolutely changed my life. They made it possible for me to do drug court. You know, when I pled guilty to all those charges, I didn't believe in myself. I was like, I'm going to prison. Yeah. <laughs> I And when the prosecutor wanted me to go to prison, like, in my head, I was agreeing with him. You know, I, there was two judges. There was a judge named Judge Koch. She's now the drug court judge in West Jordan. She believed in me before Judge Hogan believed in me. <laughs> she was the one that actually gave me a chance to go to treatment before um, drug court. And the prosecutor, when... He was telling her, you know, this guy's not fit for society and all these things. In my head, I was agreeing. I was like, this guy's right. Like, like all this stuff I did, like, this isn't okay. And she just said, you know, give yourself a chance. So it's awesome that we have judges that are in those positions that actually care about people, right? Because without that, I wouldn't be here today. So now you've graduated drug court, you found a community, you started doing the steps. Yeah, I started doing the steps, and man, so we got going on the steps, and uh, my sponsor started telling me about his higher power, and I told him, I said, man, that sounds like Santa Claus. Like, what do you mean I get to just make up my own higher power? I'm like, there's world wars fought over this, there's people dying over this, and you mean to tell me I get to just make up my own conception? And I said, yours sounds like Santa Claus. And he goes, you want me to tell you what yours sounds like? And he's like, yours sounds like you and you suck. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, you've been your higher power your whole life and your life sucks. <laughs> and I was like, I can argue with him. Was, he's like, you're asking me for help, right? <laughs> and I was like. All right, this guy's right. And the coolest, <laughs> the coolest thing about it was is I started becoming open to these different ways of thinking, right? And that victim mentality that I got to find out that I went around life with, the society was wronging me. I never wanted to look at my part. 
like yeah. the drug dealing thing in uh, California. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to look that I was selling poison to people's family members. Mm-hmm. You know, I just thought that they just took my money and took my cars and, you know, put me in prison and all this stuff. And by having somebody like that, that could actually give me a different way of looking at it. It was, it was profound. And the coolest thing about it was, is I, today I get to own, I get to own my stuff. You know, I get to take full accountability for my life, the good and the bad. (laughs) I don't have to live in morbid reflection, but I get to live in the present, right? And what I do today, right now in the present, is going to help me in my future. (laughs) And I don't have to worry about all that other bad stuff, you know? So through life, I was a taker. I took from society and things like that through my addiction. And I'm trying to spend the rest of my life giving back to society, right? That deal I made with God that I was going to do something different with my life. The coolest part about it is today I'm doing that, you know? That's amazing. And that's where that peace and serenity comes in, you know? There's a lot of people that suffer from depression, right? And the depression comes in where, um, say... Like, if I'm depressed, the reason why I'm being depressed is because I'm thinking about me. Me, 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 I, 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 want, want, want. But what happens is when I become of service to somebody, I'm no longer thinking about me. <laughs> and I, how's it, how can I think about me when I'm being of service to somebody that's in a worse spot than I'm in? You know? And what happens is that void that I felt with drugs and alcohol that was only temporary... I get to fill it with something that's like lasting, substantial. Wow. And you can't put a price tag on it. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I feel like we've just been schooled. Yeah. And uh, what a wonderful life lesson, amazing journey. Uh, it's, it, I mean. Well, I'll tell you, my, one of my takeaways from your story, Morgan, is the power of shifting our perspective. Yep. You know, that it sounds to me like. You, you had a lot of great people step up and give you opportunities and thank goodness for them. Yep. But it really came down to not being offended by what your sponsor said, but by accepting it. And that was that shift in perspective as a cognitive psychologist yep. that we believe in that. We know that, you know, how we think about things, our perspective kicks off how we feel, what we do and everything else. So that's my, that's my takeaway today. I think that's amazing. You know, the interesting thing is sitting here, listening to your story, um, to watch your mannerisms change as you tell the story. You could, when you were talking about prison and, and jail and your upbringing and your drugging and your running and gunning, you were audibly and physically Anxious. Uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. But when you started talking about your recovery, oh, I love your it. shoulders went back, <laughs> your smile got bigger. And proud of yourself, right? And proud. And, yeah. and so that well, was, it was yeah. cool because I, only, I got to hear your story, but I got to see your story. Yeah. And what's amazing is that the way you have internalized new information yeah. and been willing to accept it, yeah. you know, that was cool. And I love it. You're now sober how many days? Um, it's like two years, two months. And Congratulations. Uh, we, we were driving up in the elevator. He showed me his coin. Yep. And so what are you doing now in the recovery world? Uh, what I'm doing now is I, I sponsor people. I take meetings into rehabs. I'm trying to get in out to the prison, Utah State Prison, take meetings in there. You know, um, anytime I can be of service to anybody in recovery, 
It's a yes. I mean, I called him. I said, hey, do you want to do this podcast? He said, yep. I'll be right there. Tell me what time. I th- that's he power, said, man. He goes, man, God works in mysterious ways. And I was <laughs> like, yeah, he does. He goes, because normally I'd be roofing right now, but I'm waiting on material and I happen to have that Thursday open. Oh, I would perfect. love to do it. Perfect. Yep. It's, you know, and it's crazy how, how it all works, right? Because I'm a, I'm a Betty man. I like to gamble. And the coolest thing about this recovery thing is, is it's even cured that, right? <laughs> it's even cured that for me because, you know, I would spend 10 times I would on gambling than I would on my addiction. And the, one of the biggest takeaways uh, my sponsor gave me is, you know, it's my thinking that's my problem. I used to blame the drugs. I used to blame the courts. I used to blame the detectives. It's my thinking that's messed up. When, I, when I'm when i just operating and me, 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 I, 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 want, 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 that's when I run into collisions. <laughs> and when I'm thinking about uh, other people, how can I be of service, my life just goes smoothly. Well, that's a great takeaway. Well, thank you for stopping by and sharing your story with us. And thank you for listening to another episode of Project Recovery. In case you forgot, Project Recovery is what? It's a KSL podcast. Do you see the size of his hands? They're big. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk.